Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we learned about the numbers behind Lori Lightfoot's historic win, chewed over the legendary New York Review of Books, and discussed the racket behind international standards and codes. All this plus size matters, the Trump Diaries, and Are We Cool Yet?, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for May 31st. 2019. I-94 spoke with Edwin Frank, the editor and founder of the New York Review of Books Classics series. Frank discussed the genesis of this seminal line of American books, the difficulty works in translation phase, and the joy of discovering an unknown author. This segment also includes a reading from Jean-Patrick Manchette's The Mad and the Bad. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. And Mr. Edwin Frank. Edwin, are you with us? Yes, I'm here. Yeah, hi. So, Edwin, we'd like to start at the beginning. Um, you, you have a, a seminal role in the New York Review of Books, and I'm, we should back up for a second and note that this is the publishing arm of the magazine, the New York Review of Books as well, which is a long-running magazine started in the 1960s out of New York City that covers uh, literature, the intelligentsia, and, and much more. Uh, it's a vital publication, especially in these times. But you host uh, their reprint and, I believe, some original books line. Uh, and this really, in a sense, was a, was a brainchild of yours. I understand you came up with this when you were working at a, a subsidiary of the New York of Books with the Reader's Catalog. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how the Classics line came to be? Yeah, well, the Reader's Catalog was uh, a venture of Jason Epstein's. Jason Epstein had been an editor, was an editor for many years at uh, Random House, in some sense invented the trade paperback for the American market in the uh, beginning of the 50s. Um, influential editor, and um, the Reader's Catalog was a venture that he started up in the late 80s as independent bookstores began to fold across the country and it became harder and harder to buy books. Um, and what it was going to be was, in effect, a Sears catalog, a bookstore, as the Sears catalog as a bookstore. It was supposed to contain, or it was supposed to give you access to the 40,000 best books in print. Um, which you could then order from the reader's catalog as well. And I got involved in the mid-90s when it was going into a second edition. Um, It was a big, it was a a sort of a fun book in its own right to to browse around in. I actually was the other day in a a used bookstore in in Massachusetts and noticed noticed an old used copy of the second edition of the reader's catalog there Uh, because it was divided up by, by genre and divided up to some extent by period, and it had... Um, some minimal annotation, but annotation that gave you some sense of the character of the books, and annotation that had some character in its own right. It, it was, you know, it, was, it made it browsable and readable at the same time. It's a good way to waste time. Um, and uh, this is the catalog itself sold rather well, and there was reason to do a second one in the mid '90s. But of course, that was just at the, uh, you know, just at the threshold of the emergence of Amazon and online purchasing and so on. So in a way, the second edition of the Reader's Catalog was the last gasp of, of a certain kind of uh, print commercial culture. Um, and anyway, I was, I was enrolled to, uh, I was a freelancer, and I was reading through sections with, and tasked to say, where's this great book that should be here, or why is this lousy book here, and uh, let's get it out. Uh, and the reason that a lot of the great books that should be there weren't there was that they were out of print. And that made me think, uh, I had spent years in uh, graduate school, so the reason why books were out of print 
was I assumed it had to be some conspiracy of the uh, of, uh, of Yahoo's, but of course the main reason was that uh, they don't sell anything. Um, but uh, um, so there were other reasons for that. Anyway, I had the idea of, of putting together a list of uh, such books and making them newly available because they really were great books, and in fact, um, like all great books, pretty enjoyable too. That leads me to the next question, Edwin, and Jamie and I were discussing this. So a lot of your books are in translation. How do you decide what books you guys are going to publish? Um, I, I know you can't speak all the languages. We did, you know, you talked about the catalog and, and books being out of print, but you, your output is absolutely outstanding. And, and a lot of, you know, I, I rarely have picked up a New York Review Books classic that I didn't like. So how do you guys... Um, is there a, a team that decides on things? Do you get submissions from people all over the world? Can you explain it to us and our listeners? Sure. Um, actually, I do. I do read and speak French, and actually, and also can read basically in, in Italian and Spanish as well. So there is. I mean, there are other languages by which I can read books if they happen to have been translated into one of those other languages. Um, but um, well, I mean. <laughs> The answer I like to give to that question is rigorously by whim. Uh, so you the, throw them the down the stairs, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, from the beginning, I mean, my idea of uh, the series was that it be um, that it mix things up, mix up different kinds of genres, mix up times. By no means be a classics list. I mean, I, I, I've always thought that the title classics posed problems. Uh, in the sense that it was the books that you got in class, uh, but rather a whole range of books that made you rethink what a good book could be um, was really what I had in mind. And, and with a good book, I suppose, in some sense, the notion of a, of a lasting book. or Though those, you know, um, lasting books are sometimes books that at one point weren't really readable, but at this point suddenly are, are, are surprisingly to the point. So what last may may. Uh, resurface and go under and resurface again. Um, otherwise, I mean, mixing up two in the sense of mixing up languages, as I said to begin with, we began uh, by reprinting now, I would say that uh, at least a third of the books we do are actually new to the English language uh, or are new as compilations of material that have never previously appeared. Um, perhaps close to half. I've never actually really uh, toted up the, not figured up the numbers. Um, and, you know, we have, uh, well, I mean, a variety of the things we do, a small, I, I think of the series as being uh, composed of, 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 in some sense, various strands or threads. And uh, there are different languages, there are several languages that we've uh, translated from uh, fairly intensively. One is, uh, or published translations from fairly intensively. One is Italian, French, German more recently. We've delved into Hungarian. There was a period when it seemed like we would have a season that was nothing but Hungarian books, which isn't good for either the publishing house or the Hungarian books, but we managed to mix things up again. Um, there are authors that we're quite committed to, Victor Serge, Andrei Platonov, Vasily Grossman, J.G. Farrell, uh, Eileen Chang. Um, these are all writers who, who, uh, mean, who I think are, to some extent, have been underestimated and actually are, are really important figures. Um, there is uh, a small strand of science fiction. There's a small strand of horror, and these these can be you know added on to as you go along. And then also you can swerve and take on something new. 
Um, so it's in some sense um, a kind of a game, in a certain way, a kind of game of, of, of fi- a game which allows you to find out other things and and uh, and and uh, share share those discoveries. We do get lots of recommendations. I mean, we do ask people to send in recommendations, and people do send in recommendations, and um, those have led us to some wonderful things. Um, equally, you know, we hear, uh, we haunt used bookstores, we hear from translators, we hear from agents, um, a whole mix of different sources, you know, like a good, like a good spy agency. We have to uh, <laughs> keep our ears open. So that, that brings up another, a number of questions actually from me, and I want to put a pin on Eileen Chang. We're going to talk a little bit more about her later. We actually have a prepared reading, uh, from her book, uh, as well. I know, I believe she's one of your favorite authors. But I, I wanted to back up because you mentioned French, and I, I have to assume just because of some of the books you're putting out, and I'm thinking of uh, Jean-Patrick Manchette and, and George Simenon, that you, you must be a fan of detective literature because you're putting out some extremely high-quality and esoteric French crime fiction and, and Belgian crime fiction, which is, is very unusual in the American marketplace. And for our listeners, I do, I do uh, we, we also have a reading from Manchette, but I do urge people to search it out. Are, are you a fan of this stuff, and did you read it in the, in the original French? Yeah, no, I read the uh, I read the Manchette, the original French, and uh, Simonon was slightly different in that we were publishing the the what were called the roman dur or the hard novels, which are crime fiction, but not strictly well. They're different from the uh, the Maigret fiction in that they don't involve a detective. I'm not a big fan of of, of fiction with solutions. Um, I love the kind of organized. Um, gleeful mayhem that Manchette sets off, and uh, I remember reading that book, uh, well, actually, I was in France with my my then 13-year-old son or something like that, and uh, his 12-year-old cousin traveling around, and I just started telling them the totally over-the-top story of that book, and uh, and both of them sort of after a while said, and what happens next? (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, we actually have a – this might be a good point. We actually have a reading from that. Why don't we play that real quickly? We'll, we'll pause for about three minutes. As always, our readings are done by Shanna Van Volt. Today, as always, they're, they're also music provided by the International uh, Anthem Recording Company. But this is uh, Jamie Branch, the trumpeter, with her side project, Antiloper. This is a, a selection from uh, Jean-Patrick Manchette's uh, The Mad and the Bad, so you can get kind of a, a sense of what Edwin's talking about here. And we'll be right back with Edwin live after this little pause. Julie was dazed, her head, her eyes were in a fog. When a gap in the crowd opened up, she bound through it, tugging Peter along behind her. The little boy was stupefied with terror. Over the hatted heads, a clear space could be seen. Julie turned to look back. Amid the crush, she spotted Thompson getting nearer with great long strides. A tall silhouette, thin and dried up and gray-haired. If he got a clear shot, he would be able to pot the girl like a target at a fairground shooting gallery. From a hundred meters, Julie could make out the man's teeth gleaming in his lined face. She raced straight towards a prosunic fronting the street and entered through the glass doors. She charged down the aisles. The store occupied the ground floor level of an entire block. Beyond the vast accumulation of commodities, more glass doors opened onto another street in an esplanade black with people. Julie charged in that direction. She must get out ahead of Thompson, melt into the crowd. She jostled housewives as she passed. The girl was no more than a few meters from the exit doors when Coco materialized on the other side of the glass. Blinking, he looked at Julie, who had pulled up short. He seemed hesitant, almost fearful. Julie made an about turn, twisting Peter's arm. The boy began to cry. Oh, shut up, shut up, cried Julie. It's over. She rushed up to a sales girl. Mademoiselle, call the police right away. 
What? The police. Call the police. But what's going on? Demanded the salesgirl, taking a step back. She scrutinized Julie with a suspicious smile tugging on her lips. Twenty meters away, Coco came in through the glass doors. Suddenly, he dashed forward. Julie whirled round. Tableware was on display close by, and she swept a pile of unbreakable plates onto the floor. They did not break. You're crazy, exclaimed the salesgirl, taking another leap backwards. Murderer, yelled Julie with all her might. Pirouetting once more, she slapped the salesgirl violently across the face and set off at a run. She never let go of Peter, who lost his balance and fell forward still firmly in Julie's grasp. She did not release him, hauling him along at top speed, his feet dragging on the tile floor. He was bawling at the top of his lungs. At the other end of the Pacific, Thompson had entered the store and stood motionless, his pistol dangling at the end of his arm, barrel pointing towards the floor. Murderer! yelled Julie again, heightening the skepticism of the housewives. She kept running, zigzagging among the shelves. As she proceeded, she grabbed products and threw them on the floor. A store employee with a badge on his white cashier smock suddenly posted himself in her way, legs and arms spread like a goalie. Stop right there, he commanded in a measured tone. Julie delivered a head blow to his face. The girl's hard skull struck the man's chin, snapping his head back and causing him to collapse into a heap on the tiled floor. Julie leapt over him. He grabbed Peter and held on. Julie grabbed a stainless steel paring knife from the display and stabbed at the air above the head of the department manager. He immediately let go of Peter and curled into a ball, using his elbows to protect his eyes and his knees to protect his genitals. Police! He cried in a falsetto voice. About time, too, said Julie, and a bullet passed through her right arm. Ben Jarofsky discussed Lori Lightfoot's historic win with the consultants behind it, pollster Jason McGrath and longtime political Joanna Klonsky. McGrath and Klonsky dished on why they initially feared Jerry Chico's candidacy when they realized the numbers were breaking their way and how they outmaneuvered Tony Preckwinkle. The Best of the Ben Jarofsky Show airs every Friday at noon. Joanna Klonsky, ace political strategist uh, who worked for Lori Lightfoot in the campaign, and Jason McGrath, uh, a uh, pollster from J-G-B-A-O Strategies. I got that right, Jason? No. Oh. <laughs> Close enough. G-B-A-O. It's Kabao. Oh, G-B-A. Well, there's no J? No. All right. No, okay. no J. G-B-A-O. Okay, G-B-A-O. <laughs> It was very close, though. It was very close. <laughs> close enough, man. Anyway, uh, Jason was on a show about two weeks ago. We were talking political strategies, and it's one of the most popular shows, by the way. Just throwing that out there. Uh, Jason McGrath, Joanna Klonsky, they were there from the start of the Lori Lightfoot mayoral campaign, so we're going to break it apart. What did it take to get Lori Lightfoot from being completely unknown political figure in the fringes of Chicago politics uh, to be the mayor of the city of Chicago, the most exalted position in all of Chicago. Joanna Klonsky and Jason McGrath are my guests. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. All right, so we'll just start off, Joanna, the question. We'll just start off, just sort of paint the picture. Uh, we Let's take us back to the summer of 2018. Uh, Lori Lightfoot has announced that she's running for mayor of Chicago, and most Chicagoans are saying, who? Oh? Uh, talk about the challenges you Most faced. Chicagoans were not even saying anything about this at all at that point. <laughs> yeah. Summer in Chicago. Summer in Chicago, like but nobody it, knows. Right, no one's paying any attention. I will say I joined this campaign in June 2018 thinking we were going against Rom because that's just my thing. Mm-hmm. I didn't know if we really could do it or not. It wasn't really clear how, how he was positioned, how weak was he. 
Um, was he going to raise up a squillion dollars again? We knew he would. Um, but um, I had already worked on two other races against Rom before in 2011, 2015, so it seemed like a natural place for me to go. Jason was one of the folks who convinced me to come on board. Jason had already been on board. Yeah, I uh, I was on board from day one, I guess. Um, we we were uh, asked us to speak with uh, Mayor-elect Lightfoot, I think in December of 2017, before she had made any decisions and mm-hmm. wanted to just sort of take the temperature and see what was uh, you know what was possible and the changes she wanted to see in the city and why she thought she was best equipped to to uh, affect them. And I think that's really the way that the race sort of played itself out. On all the way until September 4th or 5th or whatever day it was that uh, Mayor Emanuel stepped on the stage and let the world know that he was going to be done after eight years. So um, we had to change our plan a little bit at that point, I guess. All right, let's talk about the challenges uh, embedded in running against Mayor Rahm, because uh, you had a pivot there, uh, Joanna, obviously, from what you're talking about, from how you were going to run a campaign with Mayor Rahm uh, in the race. So what were you gearing up to do uh, to run against Mayor Rahm? Well, I think to, to run against Rahm, it was, obviously, was a completely different strategy, and it was a fixation, again, on what had happened since 2015. Um don't forget all of the Laquan stuff broke after Rahm's re-election in 2015. I think Lor- Lor- the mayor-elect now, Lori, had been a champion on police reform and championed the need for a consent, CPD consent decree. So I think we were looking at a strong focus on those sort of issues. Yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're in 2018 and you're looking at the race that's going to be in February, you have a mayor whose standing was not nearly as strong as it was when he was reelected for the reasons that Joanna just stated, but um, also had some real problems on sort of both ends of the political spectrum. There were a lot of progressives, especially younger progressives, um, communities of color who had provided the margin for the mayor's victories in 11 and 15 who were disenchanted with some of his leadership. And then there were the decisions that were made in terms of some of the fiscal challenges that, that he, to be fair, inherited, um, but that gave some folks potentially in uh, more, uh, you know, 41st Ward, 19th Ward, places like that, had had some concerns about the cost of living in the city. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was kind of squeezed from both directions. And we knew that uh, that the mayor Lex, that, that Lori's background actually gave us an opportunity to sort of bridge some of those divides um, and provide a real challenge. Now we had to get to the second round and we knew it was gonna be hard and there were a number of other candidates who were running and I think that the mayor's team, which is wasn't is and was incredibly talented and smart group of political operatives also knew that they had some challenges and that uh, a candidate like Lightfoot was well uh, positioned to, to make the most of them. So that was the plan. That was the plan. We did research. We knew we had a path. It was not going to be easy. Uh, I think you said what a squillion dollars, a squillion dollars. <laughs> that was going to be. That was just going to be the first week that they were going to throw at us, and it was going to go up from there. Now, did you had had you uh, internal polling? Yeah. Is it so, and what did the polls show? Uh, this again before Rom left. This, so we're talking roughly, you know, August of 2018 thereabouts. What did the polling show uh, about Lori versus Rom? A, a lot of interest. Um, I, I think anytime you're going to introduce some, I mean, talk about inter- this was before we were even uh, announced as a candidate. So nobody really had a sense of who the Chicago Police Board president was, mm-hmm. and we were in a position where we kind of explained her background and who she was, and we introduced. 
uh, in the course of a, a survey instrument this new candidate to people, and we got a good sense that you know what she was saying about, and ended up being all the things that she said all the way through the election about investing in underserved communities, about uh, police accountability, about schools, about um, finances. All of these things actually resonated with people, and there were vulnerabilities against the mayor that had never really been opened up, like, for example, what happened um, after the Laquan McDonald tape was released. Um, that, as Joanna said, was not part of the 2015 campaign. Uh, no one had really, in a political context, used that uh, against uh, current leadership. I guess the 2016 uh, state's attorney's race that Joanna and I both worked on was sort of a test run for that. But um, it was a problem. And we saw that there was a path in this environment. And again, a survey is not the real world. I mean, a survey doesn't fight back doesn't have a Briscrillion dollars, and we knew it was going to be a real challenge to beat someone as uh, someone who had never lost an election, like Rahm Emanuel. Mm, it's hard to lose an election when everybody's on your side, but whatever. Uh, <laughs> uh, Joanna, talk about that. The Laquan McDonald uh, video, which was released, uh, as you were saying, in November two, 2015, after Chewy Garcia was de defeated by Rahm. Um, soured so many people in the city of Chicago on Mayor Rahm because most people, I'm speaking general here, assume that he uh, hid that, intentionally hid that video from view uh, because he thought it would uh, undercut his reelection campaign. Did you discover that that was the case, that, that he was still vulnerable uh, for, uh, fall, from the fallout from that? That was already three years had passed. We're talking about something that happened, went down in November of 2015 when the judge ordered the tape released and people could see the tape and uh, decisions that were being made in August of 2018, three years past. It was still a volatile issue? Was it as volatile as it was in November 2015? Probably not. But I think everyone knew when analyzing the field of play that we were going to be reopening that wound and picking at that scab and talking about it. It's part of Lori Lightfoot's story how she came to be a person who anyone knew who she was, was that she was the chair of the Police Accountability Task Force who had issued the scathing report that ex laid bare and exposed the culture of racism and um, a lack of accountability in the police department and that she had been banging this drum. And so it's part of her story and everyone knew we were gonna be talking about it no matter what. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the math, the calculus changed so dramatically with that. You win elections in Chicago by building coalitions. You can't just be the African-American candidate. You can't just be the liberal candidate. You have to be able to talk to more than one person at a time. Something that I think the mayor did, that Mayor Emanuel did quite well in 11-15. He overwhelmingly won African-American wards, both in uh, the 2011 first round, which was the only round, and the second round in 2015. I think that was going to be a lot more difficult against Lori Lightfoot. Um, you know, I don't, I, I don't know the reasons why he decided not to run. Although he seemed pretty happy the day that he walked on stage and <laughs> didn't have the weight of the world on his shoulders anymore. But um, it, it's absolutely a very, um, a very difficult thing to do to win an election without a broad coalition in Chicago, which uh, we were thankfully able to to illustrate in April. <laughs> Welcome to the show. I'm standing outside the co-prosperity sphere here on Morgan waiting for Kyle. And this episode will be...
What's up? Oh, come here. Okay, oh, yeah. park the truck. Don't park. There's a railroad tie in the back. Pull it out and slide it in front of the back tires. It'll come to a full stop. Okay. <coughs> uh, serious carbon monoxide stuff going on yep. with this truck. <laughs> That's not good. I know I... I know I kept falling asleep in front of red lights. Whose pickup truck is this, anyway? That's a friend of mine's. I mean, what are you, what are you doing with it? I've been delivering filing cabinets all over the city. Why filing cabinets? Because it's the safest way for people to keep the facts safe from alternative fact people. Oh, you mean like documents, birth certificates, passports, stuff facts like that? Facts of life. Conversations, photographs, doodles, recipes, mm. all things. See, filing cabinets mm. can't crash or be hacked or manipulated by anything that isn't a crowbar or the key that opens it. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't a hard drive do the job? Hard drive? Are you nuts? Uh, do you have any ideas how easy it is for someone with advanced computer knowledge to get inside of one of those things? <laughs> hey, Janice Joplin, I bet all the recipes that Mars Brewing has are on some dumb computer somewhere. Is yeah. it any surprise at all that we live in an age well, of an just... orange man? And the Patriots cheating <sighs> their way into another Super Bowl. The whole society is becoming undertow. Yeah, I know. It does feel that way. I just... At least the Women's March was a positive example where the nation can go, you know? It was more than positive. It saved my life. How do you mean? Uh, the carbon monoxide leak in the truck nearly killed me a bunch of times. I was constantly being resuscitated. So you were in the march? I was delightfully trapped in it, actually. I was doing my part in handing out filing cabinets. That's awesome, Kyle. I mean, not very cool for the environment, but your best effort is good enough, as always. You know, I, I don't want to ruin the show or nothing, but I gotta ask. Why do you sound so depressed today? Well, an overwhelming sense of dread. Uh, you know what? There's, there's no time to wallow. You can donate, you can volunteer, you can show up and get involved. You, know. you can make America not like Undertown. Right. Now repeat after me. Make America not like Undertown. Make America not like Undertown. Make America not like Undertown. Make okay. We should write a song. Yeah, okay. What's the best nation? Donation, as it was famously said. Now, I do a lot of things for people, and I don't just write songs for all you jokers out there. Back to Radio Free Bridgeport with the homeboys.
This week on The Trump Diaries, no rest or remembrance as Trump continues his attacks on Pelosi and Biden. Trump tries to stop climate change science. Trump loses again in court. Robert Mueller throws a grenade at Trump. And Trump's tweets are losing their potency. These are The Trump Diaries. Date 154, May 23rd. A single Republican held up a partisan disaster relief funding complaining that it contained no money for Trump's wall. Chip Roy, a former staffer for Ted Cruz, said the bill didn't address the humanitarian crisis at the border and that it was not paid for. Because of congressional rules, his objection was enough to kill passage. A federal court sided with the House Financial Services and Intelligence Committees in their bid for Trump's financial records from Deutsche Bank on Capital One. The ruling is being appealed by Trump's lawyers but on a fast-track process, meaning the House could get the records as soon as next week. Deutsche Bank has said it will comply with the subpoena. Nancy Pelosi continued goading Trump, suggesting he needed an intervention. Trump then melted down and began calling her Crazy Nancy. She's a mess. She's lost it, adding that he is an extremely stable genius. Pelosi quickly shot back, when the extremely stable genius starts acting more presidential, I'll be happy to work with him on infrastructure, trade, and other issues. This seemed to enrage Trump, who then enlisted a series of aides, Kellyanne Conway, Mercedes Schlapp, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, Larry Kudlow, and Hogan Gidley, to claim that he was very calm during his brief infrastructure meeting with Ms. Pelosi. One by one, his aides acceded to his wishes in a ritual rarely seen in democratic governments. Quote, very calm, no temper tantrum, Conway said. Very calm and direct, Schlapp said. Mercedes is right, Kellyanne is right, you are calm, Kudlow said. Very calm. I've seen both. This was definitely not angry or ranting. And Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin reportedly plans to delay the printing of the new $20 bill until Trump leaves office. That bill, which would place Trump's hero Andrew Jackson with Harriet Tubman, has been derided by Trump as political correctness. Trump has also said Tubman should be on the little-used $2 bill. Day 155, May 24th. England's Prime Minister Theresa May, who tried for three years to deliver Brexit and failed, will now stand down June 7th. Her Conservative Party will elect a new leader who will become Prime Minister unless a general election is called. May is largely seen as a failed Prime Minister. Her departure is already triggering a vicious leadership battle. A Chicago banker, Stephen Conk, has been charged with bribery for allegedly issuing $16 million in high-risk loans to former Trump campaign chairman Paul Manafort in exchange for help getting a position within the administration. Conk, who is the founder and CEO of Federal Savings Bank of Chicago, has pled not guilty. He was released on a $5 million bond. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange has been indicted under the Espionage Act. The new superseding indictment obtained by Trump significantly expands the legal case against Assange and raises grave First Amendment concerns. The case could become the first test of prosecuting reporters over their work. Assange, however, is also alleged to have assisted Chelsea Manning in breaking military encryption. Two new surveys have cast doubt on the so-called global rebound. The Fed found that 4 in 10 American adults would not be able to cover an unexpected $400 expense. The findings came as a shock to the Fed, which has claimed the economy is growing. In Britain, a scathing UN poverty report warned that the UK's social safety net had been eviscerated by the government's austerity program. Calling the program punitive, mean-spirited, and often callous, the UN equated it with the Victorian era and added that it was, quote, a policy pursued more as an ideological than an economic agenda. Britain's austerity program was heavily influenced by American right-wing think tanks. Trump is to attempt to revise Obama-era civil rights for transgender people in the nation's health care system, eliminating gender identity as a factor in health care. Trump's new policy will only recognize characteristics of sex at birth. 
The Obama administration adopted a rule in question in 2016 to carry out a civil rights provision of the Affordable Care Act known as Section 1557. That provision prohibits discrimination based on race, color, national origin, sex, age, or disability in any health program or activity that receives federal funding. A Texas judge, however, ruled that Congress did not understand sex to include gender identity, and the Trump administration, rather than appealing, has said it will bring the civil rights provision of the Affordable Care Act into compliance by ditching it. Date 156, May 25th. Trump ordered U.S. intelligence agencies to cooperate with an investigation into whether he was spied on during the 2016 election. Attorney General William Barr was given sweeping new powers to examine the origins of the Russia investigation. Trump, of course, has claimed without reason he was spied on and that the investigation is a witch hunt. Barr was given new powers to declassify documents, weaponizing the intelligence agencies against Trump's political opponents. Barr has also said he believes the Trump campaign was, quote, spied on. Trump retweeted a heavily edited video that falsely claimed Nancy Pelosi had difficulty speaking to reporters. In a post entitled, Pelosi Stammers Through News Conference, Trump attached a heavily edited Fox Business Network clip of Pelosi's 23-minute news conference from earlier in the day. Under fierce criticism, including from Fox, Trump later claimed, quote, I don't know about the video. Trump has personally and repeatedly urged the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to award a border wall contract to a specific construction firm in North Dakota run by a major Republican donor and frequent Fox News guest. That company's CEO, Tommy Fisher, is a frequent guest on conservative talk shows and radio stations. Trump has pushed for Fisher Industries to receive a multi-billion dollar border contract in phone calls, at White House meetings, and during conversations on Air Force One. A $1 million donation to Trump's inaugural committee is being scrutinized by federal prosecutors. Real estate mogul Franklin Haney made a donation seeking regulatory approval for a bid to acquire an Alabama nuclear power plant. He did not get the plant. And Trump bypassed Congress to sell billions of dollars worth of weapons to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Trump invoked an emergency provision to prevent Congress from blocking the $7 billion sale of precision-guided missiles and combat aircraft. Date 157, May 26th. Trump said he agreed with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un after North Korean state media called Joe Biden a, quote, fool of low IQ. Trump said while in Japan, quote, Kim Jong-un made a statement that Joe Biden is a low IQ individual. He is probably based on his record. I think I agree with him on that. Democratic presidential candidate Pete Buttigieg accused Trump of faking an injury to avoid serving in the Vietnam War. Quote, there is no question, I think, to any reasonable observer, he found a way to falsify a disabled status. If some of you thinks it's all right to let somebody go in his place into a deadly war and is willing to pretend to be disabled in order to do it, that is an assault on the honor of this country. Buttigieg served in the Navy as an intelligence officer. Trump spent most of his state visit to Japan tweeting about Joe Biden. Trump sent off such missives as, quote, super predator was the term associated with the 1994 crime bill that Sleepy Joe Biden was so heavily involved in passing. That was a dark period in American history, but has Sleepy Joe apologized? No. And North Korea has fired off some small weapons, which disturbed some of my people and others, but not me. I have confidence that Chairman Kim will keep his promise to me. Also smiled when he called Swamp Man Joe Biden a low IQ individual and worse. Perhaps that's sending me a signal? Aides have reportedly pleaded for Trump to stop seeing Biden as a major threat. Biden, for his part, has capitalized on the tweets using it as evidence among major donors that Trump is scared of his candidacy. Date 158, May 27th. 
Trump is now attempting to undermine the science on which climate change policy rests. Under Trump's orders, parts of the federal government will no longer report on the future effects of a warming planet and what the Earth could look like by the end of the century. The White House has appointed a director of the United States Geological Survey, who is a former astronaut and petroleum geologist. James Riley has ordered that scientific assessments produced by that office use only computer-generated climate models, projecting the impact through 2040, rather than through the end of the century, as has been done previously. This presents a deeply misleading picture of climate change. Meanwhile, a new record was set for frequency of tornadoes in the United States this week with swaths of damage from Oklahoma and Kansas through Indiana and Ohio. As climate change continues, more severe storms are expected. Staff members are apparently trying to get out of traveling with Trump to foreign countries, describing Air Force One as a nightmare and calling Trump the toddler president. Trump apparently spends most of his time raging at cable news and demands that Fox News be available in all his quarters regardless of where in the world he is. He refuses to eat local cuisine and dislikes policy discussions, repeatedly asking foreign governments that he be made a guest of honor instead. And White House Principal Deputy Press Secretary Hogan Gidley over the weekend complained about the media's coverage of Trump and said he wished, quote, we had a complicit, compliant media instead. Date 159, May 28th. Special Counsel Robert Mueller reportedly drafted a three-count obstruction of justice indictment against Trump before deciding to shelve it. The claim is made in a new book by author Michael Wolff and is based, quote, on internal documents given to me by sources close to the Office of the Special Counsel. The first count charged Trump with influencing, obstructing, or impeding a pending proceeding before the department or agency of the U.S. The second count charged Trump with tampering with a witness. The third count charged Trump with retaliating against a witness. A spokesman for the special counsel's office denied the claim, saying, quote, the documents you've described do not exist. However, the Guardian newspaper reported it had seen the documents. Department of Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao, the wife of Mitch McConnell, made a $40,000 profit from her investment in Vulcan, which happens to be the nation's largest construction materials supplier. Chao had promised to invest from the company more than a year ago to comply with ethics requirements. Vulcan is the nation's largest provider of road asphalt, presenting a direct conflict of interest for Chao. A HUD appointee said she may have broken a federal law in retweeting political content from official accounts, but then she doesn't care. Lynn Patton, who has been cautioned in the past for Hatch Act violations, said after one of the tweets, which attacked freshman Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, quote, I honestly don't care anymore. The Duchess of Sussex, American-born Meghan Markle, said she will not meet Trump on his state visit to the United Kingdom. Markle, who is African-American, has been withering in her criticism of Trump. And former White House advisor Stephen Bannon described the Trump Organization, quote, as a criminal entity and claimed that investigations into Trump's finances will lead to his downfall. Quote, he will be revealed not to be the billionaire he said he was, just another scumbag. Day 160, May 29. Robert Mueller announced his retirement from the Justice Department, ending his two-year appointment as special counsel overseeing the Russia investigation. Mueller went out with a bang. Mueller, in what he said would be his only public statement, said there were multiple systematic attempts to interfere in the 2016 elections by Russia. Mueller also added tartly, quote, if we had confidence that Trump clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. We did not. Mueller then went on to rebut Trump's false claims that the investigation was a witch hunt motivated by politics. Quote, the matters we investigated were of paramount importance, and it is important that the office's written work speak for itself. Mueller noted that his office could not indict a sitting president, but he strongly hinted that his office intended to be a roadmap for impeachment by Congress. Mueller also let slip that his office had investigated if a president could be indicted and then have that indictment kept under seal. That was a move Justice Department lawyers rejected as unconstitutional. 
And Mueller noted that while he did not find overwhelming evidence of a conspiracy between Trump and Russia, he repeated his report's findings that Russia had attempted to aid Trump's campaign and Trump's campaign was willing to accept that help. The statement taken in full was a remarkable pushback against Trump. Trump denied that the United States is looking for regime change in Iran, saying, quote, we're looking for no nuclear weapons. However, Trump ordered a small number of troops, as well as fighter jets, to be shipped into the region. A lone House Republican again blocked final passage of a disaster relief package, delaying relief for communities still recovering from natural disasters. The House again attempted to pass by a claim a Senate-approved $19.1 billion package, but Representative Thomas Massey of Kentucky objected, complaining that no money had been allocated for Trump's border wall. Mitch McConnell said he would fill a vacancy on the Supreme Court if a seat were to open up during next year's presidential election. McConnell had previously blocked confirmation of Merrick Garland during Obama's final year, citing a fictitious precedent against seating a justice in the last year of a president's term. A judge has blocked Trump from diverting $1 billion in Defense Department funds to build a border wall. Trump made an emergency declaration earlier this year in an attempt to circumvent Congress. In his ruling, Judge Haywood Gilliam said Trump could not use the funds without congressional approval. The Supreme Court sidestepped a case that could have tested the constitutional right to abortion, turning down an appeal signed by Vice President Mike Pence that would have reinstated a strict Indiana abortion law. The first part of the law banned abortions sought solely because of fetal characteristics that was struck down. The law's second provision required abortion providers to bury or cremate fetal remains. That part was upheld. And Trump's Twitter interaction rate fell significantly following his election and has declined further throughout 2019. This means Trump's tweets are having less and less impact on political discourse. Trump's interaction rate has plummeted from 0.55% to 0.16%. These are the Trump Diaries. Kiefer Dunn spoke with Garrett and Scott Reynolds, the programmers and activists behind UpCodes. UpCodes has been steadily publishing building codes and industry standards on their website in defiance of court orders, posing the question, do citizens really own their own laws? And why are international groups allowed to make so much money off vital standards and practices? Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn airs the first Saturday of the month at 2 p.m. Um, I've got uh, Scott and Garrett on the line uh, from UpCodes. Scott, Garrett, how's it going? Not too bad. Thanks for having us on the show. Yeah, yeah. Thanks Pretty for well. uh, thanks for thanks for joining us. Um, and so maybe you can just give us uh, before we jump in uh, to the whole saga. It, it it seems like it's quite the saga. Uh, maybe you can give us a kind of brief overview, like what is Upcodes? Like uh, I'll do the the inside the actor studio. Like who who are Scott and Garrett? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. We can give a quick quick background. So. So I'm, this is Scott and, and Garrett. Um, so we're, we're co-founders of a company called Upcodes, and we focus on architects, engineers, and homeowners to provide some tools and new technology to help them navigate building regulations. So all of the parameters that go on behind getting anything built, whether it's building codes, electrical codes, fire codes, or accessibility codes, just providing some, some workflows and tools to, to help those uh, individuals through that process. Yeah, and that's that's awesome. I mean, I, I know we it's kind of an old saw on buildings on air to like talk about codes, uh, you know, but they are like a really important part of what architects do, obviously. Um, you know, I also think it's really easy for architects to be grouchy about codes, but like building codes are good <laughs> and they save lives. Um, but uh, but uh, uh, you know, I think I think 
having that information at your fingertips when you're an architect is kind of a surprisingly difficult thing to do. We often have to kind of bring on code consultants and things like this. Um, but, you know, one of the reasons why y'all are, are, are on the show um, is because one of the things we also talk about or have brought up on Buildings on Air before is kind of this public access to the building codes. And, um, you know, and I, and I, and, and so, um, I guess I don't know how how I've kind of how what like what is it that you guys are doing that's different from kind of the normal lay of the land of like how people have access to codes and sort of uh, you guys are in some maybe uh, like hot water seems like too strong of a phrase or something but but you're, you, there's some frictions with what you guys are trying to do that have kind of emerged so um, will you kind of talk talk us through that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and there's there's quite a bit of friction. And, and really, it, it boils down to do these professionals and homeowners have access to those codes? Mm -hmm. um, so like you said, it's quite a difficult process trying to uh, get a clear understanding what what are the requirements of these codes and, and these laws. And the premise and kind of the foundation of, of the products we, we offer is free access to these laws. Mm -hmm. um, and we build tools on top of that free access. And just like you alluded to, um, one big question in uh, that that's being raised currently is, you know, can we provide and redistribute the, these these laws? Yeah. And and do we have the right to innovate on on these laws? Um, it's a little bit weird uh, of a situation in that there's these organizations, nonprofits that that actually claim copyright on these these codes. Um, so as a quick background, organizations like like ICC or NFPA, they convene committees of volunteers who write the code. Um, so these are industry professionals and uh, government officials who volunteer their time, um, help write these codes. Um, groups like ICC bundle that up um, and and provide a lot of services around that. Um, they've historically been uh, gatekeepers of the code, and uh, and that's why they've they've taken issue with with upcodes in, in, in um, our free offerings of, of those same codes. Yeah. So ICC being the International Code Council, right? And they they write right, the. Right. Uh, they write the International Building Code, right? Which is one of two two main building codes that get used across the country. Uh, is that am I is that right? I mean, I know in, in Chicago, like we're we're for better and for worse, a little bit insulated from this um, because Chicago has its own building code. Uh, uh, but but right. uh, that's kind of heavily based off of some of the the model codes that exist. But usually, I guess for just for for listeners who 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 might be interested um you know we the way that most of these codes sort of work is that you have these standards developing organizations or or, or code developing organizations that kind of write a model code that then cities uh kind of write into their own laws sort of by reference right so they'll like write a law that says like we are adopting the international building code this year they might throw some amendments in there maybe not um and then you get into this weird situation where there's a copyright sort copywritten sort of document that then is referenced into the law so then this part of the law is behind a copyright which may, basically puts it effectively behind a paywall is that is that is that a, 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 a right correct breakdown of what's happening yeah that's exactly right and uh, one extra point you know with the Chicago building code that's based off the International Building Code from ICC. So they, to my knowledge, they believe they own that law too. 
So that law that oh, wow. all Chicago residents have to follow or yeah. face civil or criminal penalties, they own that. They think they own that. Yeah. Uh, and we obviously disagree. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, obviously like this, this to anyone, I mean, I think this is also like one of those issues that like unites people from like all across the political spectrum. Cause you're just like, what? Like, you know, you, how, do, how does like a private entity sort of like own a law like that? <laughs> right. Like, but that, that's like, right. you know, and that, that might be like a sort of reductive way of, of explaining it, but it doesn't seem to me to be like totally inaccurate. No, no, I, I, absolutely. That, that is very much the, the situation we find ourselves in. And, and I, I think, you know, it, it was very frustrating for me, especially coming from a background in architecture. I used to, I studied as an architect and I worked as an architect. And to see kind of our industry and some of these limitations that's been imposed on it over the last 10, 20 years compared to other industries that, that haven't had those limitations and have benefited from really interesting mm-hmm. innovations. Yeah, You can look at lawyers and obviously a lot of law is not copyrighted and and they have these pretty incredible tools in their tool belt that make them more effective and efficient in their jobs yeah and i'm looking at the industry and saying hey you know as architects why don't we have these same tools and i think a lot of it comes down to um some of these barriers like like these organizations claiming copyright on the law um right to expand on that a little bit we've we've come across five or six either companies or individuals or organizations that try to create pretty interesting products um, Mm. similar to our own or or interesting ways to help uh, people navigate through these codes. And we're ultimately shut down by companies like ICC or, or NFPA mm-hmm. um, who, who threaten lawsuits and, and legal action if, if they continued with these tools. And those tools never saw the light of day. And you know, I, ju- I just wonder you know, what, what would the world look like and what would our industry look like if, if those tools had, had flourished? Right. And those are only the ones that, that we came across. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot more. Yeah. So what, you know, I think the, these, there's, there's been a kind of number of lawsuits. I know, uh, we, we tried to get them on the show, but, um, uh, there's a, there's a, uh, a, a kind of, uh, I don't know, like a, a like a lion for public access to the law. Carl Carl uh, Malamud is that right or M- Mamalud? I can I can never remember. I always get them mixed up. <laughs> but I know that yeah. he's he's been he's been uh, very active in this kind of fight for a long time, and and we we had tried to get him on the show a while ago, and it just didn't pan out. Um, but um, but I know that he he's kind of been involved with with lawsuits before with some of these same standards developing organizations, um, you know and. And, and so uh, and, and, and now you guys find yourselves in, in involved in a lawsuit. Is that is that right? I don't know how much you guys can talk about it sort of like on the, on the radio. Uh, but sure. Yeah. And, and I think we can talk about it. Our lawyer might uh, yell at us after. But um, <laughs> yeah, so Carl Malamud is uh, so we're, we're huge fans of Carl Malamud. Um, if if it weren't for him and other people like Peter Veck and in, in a, who, who set a, another important case uh, back in about 2006, hmm. uh, we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing now. Hmm. Uh, so Carl Malamud, along with his organization Public Resource, and as well as the Electronic Frontier Foundation, they're currently in a suit right now in the D.C. Circuit. Um, they just had a very uh, a, a pretty big victory at the circuit level um, against. Uh, National Fire Protection Agency, NFPA, mm-hmm. uh, ASTM. Um, so that was a very encouraging uh, result for us. And and like you were mentioning before, it kind of cuts across the political spectrum. Uh, they had three judges ruling in on that case. One was a Clinton appointee, uh, one was an Obama appointee, and one was a Trump appointee. 
And all three judges were extremely clear uh, in their statements saying, you just can't copyright the law. It's not sensible. Yeah. The smut has finally been the physical smut is no more and we've, we've been following it um following the news for for years finally it's 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 gone it's gone the way of the of the uh, of the, the of floppy the, disk of the floppy disk of the uh uh you know the slug it's gone the way of the trackball mouse it's all gone and now added that list the unit of measurement known as the smut is dead or is it though smut is as we all know uh, a unit of measure a unit of length uh, named after its discoverer oliver r smut uh, he was then president of the american national standards institute and introduced the unit of based on his own height to help standardize american and worldwide data yes um this was a huge step you know there's a lot of places in america that are still using uh feet miles etc but if you look at the records if yeah. you look at where the actual planning is it's all in smuts sure and I, I at some point you know nasa was that was one of the big i mean that ca- that caused a lot of great problems early in the space programs was that some engineers were still using feet and miles when universally all all uh astrophysicists and aerospace engineers worldwide and in all major colleges were you know basing their calculations on the smut um so there were there were some pretty tragic incidents in the early space program a lot of money lost yeah uh yeah um it was actually a pretty big deal too because the meter under smut's tenure as the president Mm -hmm. of the american national standards institute got the the metric system recognized a meter as 0.588 smuts yes um and that was that basically solidified it across the world as the unit of distance um Mm -hmm. the trade-off however was that in order to prevent that physical measure from changing uh oliver smut had to have their body preserved and kept under inert gases sure. to make sure that there always was a physical smut to be compared yes. against. True. Now, th- this was 40, 50 years ago yes, at this he point. he truly donated his, donated his body to measurement. Are we cool yet? 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 The Lump and Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.